From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana. This alleged shooter posted a 180-page manifesto online just days before the attack, and it draws on and references replacement theory at least 28 times. Fox News host Tucker Carlson, he has made a reference or variation to this replacement thing over 400 times since 2016. When news broke of a racist mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, many instant responses highlighted lax gun laws, poor access to mental health care, and Tucker Carlson. Writer Jeff Charlotte instead took the time to read the shooter's entire manifesto and to draw some broader conclusions that are both credible and terrifying. Jeff will be back with us on this week's State of Belief Radio. We, as the bishops of the United States, identified abortion as the preeminent issue. And by preeminent, we're saying it's the most important issue. Jamie Manson is executive director of Catholics for Choice, an activist group that represents the real-life views of a vast majority of American Catholics. Even as the hierarchy further hardens its ahistoric absolutist stance and plays a key role in the likely end of Roe v. Wade. She comes at this in a principled and thoughtful way and will be with us later in the hour. Americans overall do not support overturning Roe v. Wade. Numbers don't lie. Unfortunately, a whole lot of self-proclaimed Christians do when they claim that faith must demand a shutdown of reproductive rights. The fact is, a number of religious traditions don't come anywhere close to teaching that abortion is murder, and neither does science. Now, new research from Pew confirms yet again that a majority of Americans believe abortion bans are wrong. And we'll get the numbers from Bashir Muhammad, one of the authors of America's abortion quandary. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and a world of change. The extremist right continues to solidify its global networks, with the Conservative Political Action Conference celebrating Viktor Orban's crushing of Hungarian democracy by meeting in Budapest this weekend. The authoritarian prime minister was the exalted keynote speaker, exhorting the fawning crowd to replicate the, quote, Christian conservative success of his nation and create structures and information channels impregnable to what he called progressive dominance. The conference lived down to that command by blocking press access for a number of mainstream American media outlets. Other speakers joined Orban in calling for the establishment of global alliances among like-minded right-wingers. Strangely, America firsters like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson sent loving video messages. And in Germany, a leading Catholic bishop has issued a formal apology to LGBT persons for neglect and abuse perpetrated in the name of God. 
Calling homophobia an unholy line of tradition in the church, Archbishop Heiner Koch of Berlin then committed to creating structures in every parish in his diocese to counter anti-LGBT discrimination. Meanwhile, back at home in the U.S. of A., the Archbishop of San Francisco has openly thumbed his nose at Pope Francis's command to refrain from using the sacraments as a weapon in the culture wars. Salvatore Cordiglione has announced that Californian and U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is banned from receiving communion. Using Twitter, of course, the arch-conservative archbishop attacked the second most powerful Catholic elected official in the country, not just for her pro-choice stance as the holder of a secular office, but for ignoring his demands to explain her stance on reproductive rights to him. The nerve, Nancy. Don't you know your place? Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms, I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now, to our first guest. Hardened in our ideological bunkers, far too many Americans have become accustomed to reacting to any tragic event by blaming their favorite scapegoat, whatever that may be, for a given person. Such was the case with the brutal murder of 10 mostly African-American grocery shoppers in Buffalo, New York, on May 14th. Unthinking, finger-pointing gets us exactly nowhere. But it is a lazy way to avoid all responsibility, complacently shrugging if only those people would do something. We wouldn't have these problems. Other Jeff Charlotte tends to do it the hard way. After this shooting, he read through the entire 180-page manifesto posted online by the 18-year-old suspect. And only then did he draw some educated but deeply disturbing conclusions in a Vanity Fair column, conclusions which we are fortunate that he's agreed to share with us today. Jeff, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Hi, Welton. It's good to be with you. Uh, Sorry it's under such horrible circumstances. Same. The article is headlined, The Terrifying Familiarity of the Buffalo Shooting Suspects' Extremist Screed. Why should this be familiar by now? I mean, as long as there have been mass killers... There's been manifestos, and we can go back to Mein Kampf earlier. But this particular manifesto, uh, much of which is lifted directly from the manifesto used by uh, 
men named Breton Tarrant who uh, uh, killed a huge number of people in a New Zealand mosque in Christchurch in 2019. Much of it is lifted, not so much as plagiarism, but as sort of tribute to that manifesto, which he attributes. And in turn, that manifesto borrows heavily from uh, the 2011 manifesto of the Oslo murderer, uh, Anders Breivik, who uh, uh, killed uh, close to 100 people in, in 20, 2011. And, and all these manifestos, in fact, are in turn borrowing uh, also from the manifesto of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, mm. whose manifesto was published in the Washington Post as part of his demand, his, his full giant manifesto in an attempt to uh, stop the bombing. So these manifestos are repeating themselves, each one adding on to the last. Um, and uh, it not quite duplicates. It's a little bit like a chain letter adding on to the last. But we've been, this message is being broadcast repeatedly and louder and louder. And instead of dismissing it as aberration, it's time for us uh, to recognize the signal and to push back. Jeff, you open your article uh, with a chilling scene that uh, played out just hours after the Buffalo Massacre. Uh, Would you describe that scene, please, and uh, talk about its significance? So uh, the rock star Ted Nugent, uh, younger listeners will thankfully not know him, Um, most famous for a song called Scat, Cat Scratch Fever, has since become a extreme far-right activist. Um, I think it's fair to accurately call him, with no hyperbola, a fascist. Uh, was opening for uh, uh, Donald Trump and Trump Jr. on Saturday night in Austin, Texas, and uh, told the crowd, I love you. I love you people madly, but I'd love you more if you went forward and just went berserk on the skulls of the Democrats and the Marxists and the communists. If mm. I'd love you more if you went forward and just went berserk on the skulls. This is a direct call for violence. This isn't a rhetorical move. And, and what it means to me, I think, is that um, what we're really seeing is the far right, which is always complaining about the idea of open borders, has embraced open borders between rhetoric and action. It's increasingly hard to draw the line. I'm not saying that Ted Nugent's responsible for what happened earlier in the day, I am saying that if someone who heard him say that now goes and acts on his words, yeah, yeah I think yeah. if you call for violence and people commit violence, you bear responsibility. Yeah. A, a lot of more liberal commentators have honed in on Tucker Carlson of uh, Fox News in their finger pointing. Uh, why is that an easy way out and why – Uh, As you write in your article, is it wrong? We make the mistake when we focus on Tucker Carlson as the bad apple. And this idea that if we could just get Tucker Carlson off the air, this would go away. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson isn't leading uh, his audience. His audience is leading him. He's embracing uh, replacement theory because his audience has. This stuff, uh, you can get it from anywhere. And the same throughout all his material. I tried to trace... uh, his manifesto to its various sources, including there's some Nazi sources in there. There's Ted Kaczynski is plagiarized. Um, there's, there's various other sources The 30 pages dedicated to anti-Semitic memes. I couldn't trace because they're so widespread. In fact, one whole page could be taken directly. I hate to say this 
from the once great writer Alice Walker, who has now embraced virulent anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. This stuff is out there mm -hmm. now. Tucker Carlson is giving voice to it. He's not inventing it. And I think there's a risk that we sort of imagine that we can contain it in this one bad actor. Jeff, uh, it's, it's been a couple of years now since you said something actually on this show uh, that has stayed with me. Uh, to paraphrase, uh, you worried out loud that the extreme right-wing fringe in this country had become mainstream. And you write something similar in this piece, uh, quote unquote, fringe racist beliefs have moved to the center and we can no longer afford the luxury of looking away. Uh, you also shocked me with the statistic that a third of Americans may support the great replacement theory. Yeah, that, that figure, a third of Americans, comes from uh, a, a very broad survey Associated Press did last week. And um, uh, if anything, I, I'm guessing that's probably low. Um, but in terms of this question of the mainstream, I look, for instance, at NPR and their coverage. They actually published a piece about why they were not going to call this the manifesto. Um, because to do so would to take these ideas seriously. Um, and I think there's a conflation there of seriously and with respect. I have no respect for these ideas, but I take them, as we all should, incredibly seriously. They just led to uh, 10 deaths in Buffalo uh, and three more. But look at the number of leading right-wing figures who have, instead of saying, instead of just rushing to utterly denounce this, have looked for ways to distance themselves. If you go on Twitter, you'll find a whole world of glee ranging from celebration of these killings to uh, the idea that the killings were actually the work of leftists, the same lie that they used for January 6th. It was actually Antifa that did this. Um, uh, we can't marginalize this because it's not marginal. Um, this, if we're going to talk about Tucker Carlson, then let's talk about the fact that Tucker Carlson has the number one rated show in, I believe, in cable news history, that the various right wing sources that are promoting this material wildly outstrip New York Times, Washington Post. There's an imagination amongst especially, I hate to say, uh, educated uh, liberals like myself um, that we're still the center. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, at the very least, the other major party in the United States, uh, uh, the Republicans, are now the party of great replacement theory. These are not fringe ideas. This is the platform. Yeah. You use the term uh, genealogies of fascism and describe each new extremist manifesto building on previous ones. How does that work? I mean, you look at uh, the Christchurch Manifesto, which this uh, killer took in large, he took it as a template. He used it as a template in the same way the Christchurch Manifesto was modeled explicitly after the Oslo Manifesto, right? Each one. But then they refine it to their own obsessions. So uh, uh, the Buffalo killer is not concerned with Muslims as those two previous ones were. He considers them bad and they should not be in America, but he's not they're not, that's not his project. He actually did a find and replace 
uh, of the word Muslim and replaced it with black. Um, and that becomes his obsession. The other change that you see that hasn't been in these previous manifestos, and I think reflects a lot of what's happening in because of QAnon right now, is anti-Semitism that was always sort of simmering is now starting to take a central place. And whereas those previous manifestos at best sort of mentioned Jews on the side, um, that is the Buffalo killer's main concern. He says the real wars between Gentile and Jew, uh, he resurrects an old racist American idea that uh, the only reason blacks are a problem is because they are doing the bidding of uh, these secret Jewish masterminds, which serves this right-wing idea. If you have this idea of white supremacy, how can you really accept that non-white people could possibly cause you troubles? They can't be your equal. Well, you need a non-human mastermind figure. And Jews are the only ones that he calls for total extermination of. Uh, he says, look, blacks, fine, they can go back to Africa. Uh, we'll kill them here if they don't, but they can go back to Africa. But Jews, we must hunt them down and kill them everywhere and not leave one. Um, that's new. Um, that's horrible. And when you say, oh, well, this guy is just an extremist, then you look at these memes. And I've seen many of these memes before. People tweet them at me, right wingers tweet them at me. It's become uh, the Groiper movement uh, with which many elected officials now congressmen are associated, embraces these memes. Yeah. Uh, that's the expansion, the newness, the horribleness. If we fail to recognize how deep this goes, uh, we will continue to flail at the, the symptoms but never get at uh, the disease. I'm at a loss, however, for how to address this uh, in a democratic society, uh, you, you name uh, Steve Bannon and uh, Stephen Miller as adherents to uh, the Great Replacement Theory and uh, the, the current anti-gay uh, propaganda of uh, uh, groomers and uh, pedas uh, that seems a sure ticket to uh, GOP electoral success. Yeah. I mean, I look at the fact that uh, uh, the leading uh, the, the not Republican nominee or leading frontrunner for the nomination for governor in four key states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan and Wisconsin um, are all people who are running on a platform uh, that not only uh, uh, do they reject the 2020 election, they'll reject the 2024 election. Um, so I look at this as uh it would only take a couple of them to, to win, uh, to in fact do that job. Right. So I think, what can we do? I mean, I, I'm not a strategist, but I am a writer. I'm a journalist. And one thing we can do is we can start naming the problem correctly. We can stop saying, Oh, let's, let's try. And I mean, we've been saying this for years now, so let's finally do it. Let's, let's hold off. lest that problem become bigger. The fight is here. It's here. Everybody in Buffalo knows that everybody, uh, you know, everybody should know that now. There's no placating these folks. There's no uh, pretending otherwise. There's no saying, let's, you know, not uh, 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 take these ideas seriously. I think we've got to get rid of a lot of euphemistic language. We've got to stop saying election denier. That's a euphemism. We have to say uh, coup plotter. That's what those people were, right? Election denier means like, Oh, I kind of that person doesn't get it. They don't quite agree or they're a little bit nuts. Um, 
Uh, we've got to take stop taking solace in the idea of lunacy on the right. Lunatic or not, uh, it's huge. We have to stop taking solace in the fact that they are a minority, and they are. Mm-hmm. Well, well, don't worry. Ultimately, we, we're, we're 70% of the country. It takes less than 30% to throw a country into terrible, terrible discord. Yeah. And um, so I think those are our steps. Let's name the problem. Mm. Jeff, you know better than uh, almost anyone how religion gets used to organize, promote, and uh, then uh, deny uh, culpability in cases like this. Uh, Would you talk about that and uh, how it could instead be used to oppose uh, deadly violence like this? You know, first of all, we have to start to recognize this as a religious project. And there we had the old the old problem of a lot of reporters sort of siloing religion elsewhere. Um, And uh, this was a Christian nationalist project, explicitly a Christian nationalist project. Now, some people say, well, no, he says he's not a Christian. That's true. He does. Um, But he says, I'm not a Christian. And yet I live by Christian values and I must do so because to be white is to be Christian. And that I can't think of a plainer statement of Christian nationalism and white supremacy than that. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you believe that Christian, it's the idea of Christianity as a form of whiteness. So now to talk about this without talking about race is to miss the whole project. And in the same way to talk about this. So I haven't seen his Christian nationalism discussed in most of the press in the same way that I haven't seen is sort of glancing attack on trans kids, the ways in which that is feeding into this. I haven't really seen the anti-Semitism, which was at the heart of his project discussed, which is also a Christian nationalist. There is no anti-Semitism without a kind of Christian nationalism. And in particular, he makes takes pains to say, uh, I'm not talking about ethnic Jews. He says some ethnic Jews might even be decent people. Uh, it is the religion to which I'm opposed. His opposition is religious. The attack on us is religious. Those four gubernatorial candidates I mentioned are all open and explicit Christian nationalists. Uh, We can't contend with this unless we're contending on the field of faith. We can't do that, as I think some secular folks want to do by just saying a pox on all religious houses. Um, It needs to be people of faith as well, speaking up uh, forcefully, forcefully. And the time, the time for saying, well, let's try and understand them. When, when you do that, you're still imagining that you're holding the center ground and that you can invite them. Um, you're not holding the center ground anymore. Uh, certainly liberal Christianity is not holding the central, central ground anymore. Uh, we do need to try and understand them, but we also must contend with those ideas and, and prove those ideas wrong. Jeff, if you only had um, one sentence or two, which is all we have, um, what's next? I think I think that the clock is ticking closer to what I've been speaking of for a while as a slow civil war, the civil war that. I never believed possible that more and more on the right and not just the fringe right, but the mainstream right are speaking of as desirable. I don't think it's in any way inevitable. I think it's still unlikely, but 
we're moving closer and we need to reverse course now. Jeff Charlotte is the author of several priceless books on the invasion of our democracy by theocratic forces titled C Street and the Family, uh, the latter of which was turned into a powerful Netflix series. Uh, He's a professor of English at Dartmouth University where he teaches creative writing Uh, We'll link to his latest Vanity Fair article, The Terrifying Familiarity of the Buffalo Shooties Suspects Extremist Screed from StateOfBelief.com. Thank you so much for being with us again today on uh, State of Belief Radio. Thank you, Elton. We're just getting started with this week's show, Up next, Jamie Manson of Catholics for Choice and later Pew Research on what Americans really believe about abortion. You're listening to State of Belief Radio brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy. When the alleged Alito draft of an opinion striking down Roe v. Wade leaked last month, one of the more memorable responses came from Jamie Manson, executive director of Catholics for Choice. She pulled no punches in blaming the hierarchy for bringing us to this crisis point. Busy as she is, Jamie has found the time to be with us today, and so I am happy to welcome her to State of Belief Radio. Jamie, welcome, and uh, thanks for for doing this uh, with us. Um, Let me begin by asking, why is it important for Catholics and others to recognize the uh, source of this uh, misguided draft decision? So the reason that I argue that the hierarchy is the source of um, the fruits of what we saw in the leaked decision two weeks ago is because um, the Catholic bishops were the first to start to really monitor Um, the liberalization of abortion laws in the states in the late 1960s. And they were very concerned about it. And they created the Right to Life League, uh, which is part of the what was then the National Council of Catholic Bishops, now the USCCB. And um, they, they, you know, they used it. They were the first to use it as a political tool to animate uh, their base. And it was the evangelicals who got the idea from Catholics uh, in the mid 1970s. Um, The evangelicals had really been uh, activating their own base on segregation and on religious liberties around that. And that finally became too uncomfortable to keep beating a racist drum like that. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't tenable anymore. And they needed a, what they called a respectable issue to pivot to and saw the political success Catholics were having um, by uh, trying to defeat anti uh, pro-choice candidates and try to promote um, anti-choice candidates. And so that's what we see happening you know that's when they pivoted Mm -hmm. uh they were inspired by that um and in addition 
the Beckett Fund, which has been the counsel in all of these uh, cases that have gone before the Supreme Court, uh, fighting for what I consider religious overreach. Um, And that is a Catholic initiative founded by a very Catholic man and the Federalist Society, which has Catholic leadership. Leonard Leo is a very conservative, devout Catholic. um, And he has been the one vetting all of these Supreme Court justices all of these years and putting them before um, people like Donald Trump. You know, uh, activists uh, immediately recognize the threats other groups face based on the language of uh, that draft. Um, Marriage equality, for example, could be reversed on the same grounds. Um, And I imagine that would be no problem for the bishops. Oh, absolutely not. No, this is their their complete agenda um, is to take their what I believe is very hard right understanding of sex, sexuality and and sexual reproduction and codify it into law. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is this is we're all fighting the same ideology, which is uh, the Catholic understanding of uh, rigid gender roles, the Catholic understanding of the purpose of sex, which is always procreation. Uh, And so, yeah. And the issue is that, you know, uh, all of these protections we have for, you know, for contraception in Griswold, for uh, abortion access in Roe, for same sex marriage in Obergefell are all based on the 14th Amendment privacy rights. And that does not enumerate those rights. And so until until we have genuine equality guaranteed to us in the Constitution through enumerated rights, we're going to see this kind of religious overreach happening again and again. There is such a, a tension between the beliefs of Catholics in the pews and the leadership of the church in this country. Uh, would you talk about the uh, effect that tension has in e- eroding trust uh, among the faithful? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this has been, you know, this started really in 1968 when um, uh Pope Paul VI published Humani Vitae, banning all uh, methods of artificial contraception. That was really the first big break because we know 98% of Catholics use artificial contraceptives at some point in their life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Catholics in the pews felt that the church was not honoring their lives uh, and their challenges and their need to be able to control the timing and number of their children for the benefit of their families as an act of responsible parenthood. Really. And so that was the first big break. And um, just, I think, to watch the bishops become so political and politically motivated, knowing they were losing moral influence over their own people. So trying to shift and get political influence, I think, um, is very distasteful to Catholics. And I would say the biggest break I've seen was last year when the bishops moved, the U.S. bishops moved to create a pastoral letter that would, in effect, uh, ban pe- uh, people like President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi from communion. Um, even conservative Catholics were were very disenchanted and disgusted by that move. So that the church actually, by the church, I mean the U.S. bishops, started a retreat, which is something I, I haven't seen them do recently. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's it's a remarkable chasm between the U.S. bishops, uh, what they see as pre- preeminent issues, and what Catholics uh, understand uh, are the important issues and what their values are. I'll talk more with Jamie Manson in just a minute, and later, Pew Research on what Americans of all backgrounds believe 
about a woman's right to choose. Now, if you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows. All of that at stateofbelief.com. I'm Welton Gaddy. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, religion and radio done differently. you to check out Good Faith Reads, a short podcast from Good Faith Media about our books. You'll find conversations with our book authors, tips on writing a book, unique angles on good faith and book publishing. We've got dozens of episodes. Good Faith Reads. We release two new episodes each month. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Welton Gaddy. My guest is Jamie Manson, Executive Director of Catholics for Choice. What are the uh, immediate steps that Catholics uh, for Choice is taking in preparing for a possible reversal of Roe? What we are doing is creating a whole curriculum for how to speak to Catholics about abortion. Um, The problem is this issue is so taboo in our church. There are no inroads for this conversation in a parish, even in a Catholic university, even a liberal Jesuit Catholic university will not talk about abortion. And so we need to create those spaces to have those conversations. And we want to have the resources and the materials Catholics need to make their own moral decisions and discernments about how they feel about abortion. Mm -hmm. And so um, that for us is step one is encountering Catholics who don't, who don't necessarily feel they're pro-choice or pro-life because it is a morally complex issue and honoring that place for them and giving them the information they need and creating the space for those deeper conversations um, to really um, change the narrative around abortion. Because, Mm -hmm. One in four abortion patients in this country is Catholic. Catholics in the pews are having abortions and our our leaders are treating it like murder. So there's a profound spiritual violence going on to a real pastoral crisis around abortion happening as well in our church. Far right uh, quasi religious outfits like uh, the Family Research Council are firing up uh, their obedient followers against uh, companies like Starbucks for offering workers uh, support in reproductive care. Killing Roe isn't enough for -hmm. these people. They are ready to block all of the exits. What kind of faith-inspired organizing and preparation is happening in the pro-choice networks that uh, you work with? So what we are trying to do is create a very robust coalition of religious leaders of all denominations, Protestant denominations, uh, Muslims, Jews, 
everyone to really make the embolden the faith voice to say we support abortion rights because of our faith, not in spite of it, and to not cede our faith to the right wing, this this right wing that you're talking about. We believe we have the moral moral high ground here. And we have the moral credibility because this is a profound issue of social justice. This is an issue of human dignity. And the fact is we are fighting a a right wing religious force. And so people of faith have to rise up and say, you will not do this in the name of our faith. Mm -hmm. And so we're really bolstering our uh, faith based coalitions to get together and become very loud and very proud about our support for abortion access. Jamie, how can Americans support those who will be most severely affected by this likely uh, loss of reproductive rights in half of the states? Yeah, well, they can start by by voting, I think. Um, we're a 501c3, so I have to <laughs> leave it there. But I think that that's an important thing is to make your, you know, your convictions heard at the polls. Um, and that's that's the one way to say that this is not where we want to see our country going. Again, this we do not want to see religious overreach by radical right wing religious forces. Um, this is not our country. Um, and I think we we have to be really loud about that. Um, I think we can support abortion funds, which are the people who are, who are doing the actual provision of abortion care. Um, you know, if, if Roe falls, um, 12 states immediately will have total total bans. There's another, you know, 16 or more states that will have similar bans and restrictions that are going to be quite severe. And people will need to be able to travel. They'll need to be able to have care um, if they need later term abortions, to be clear. But also, you know, with with medical technology, you now can do your own self-managed abortion with pills. And so in the first 10 to 12 weeks. And so I think opening up networks to get these medications into the hands of women and other pregnant people will be essential. So I think that what we're trying to do as faith based groups is create a new network. Um, there was before Roe a clergy consultation service. Uh, that in which faith leaders helped women get abortion care when it was illegal. And I think that we're going to try to create, recreate that for, for, to meet this particular moment. And so I think to, you know, keep an ear to the ground about the way in which um, faith-based groups are organizing to provide that direct service uh, would be something to, to listen to. Tell our listeners how they can follow the work of uh, Catholics for Choice and uh, how they can support that work. Great. Yes. Um, so the easiest way to follow us is certainly take a look at our website, catholicsforchoice.org. And for more live up to the minute um, uh, updates, uh, certainly our Twitter, our Facebook and our Instagram and our TikTok, which is very popular um, for the younger people, the younger listeners um, are, are great ways to learn about our work. Um, I think that one thing Catholics for Choice is trying to do is really distinguish ourselves in this movement Um, to say, you know, honoring that this is a morally complex issue for people of faith and that there's nothing wrong with that. And that is not stigma. Um, And that I think one of the reasons we're here is that there wasn't enough honoring of that in in the in the pro-choice movement and to make space for dialogue, make space for people to ask questions without, you know, um, uh, being being immediately challenged or, or, uh, you know, having their, their good faith challenged, I think is important. So. 
we really want to engage with people who are not sure how they feel, who are in a process of moral discernment. Certainly, we have a lot of Catholics coming to us who feel a certain moral obligation to talk about this because they see their church. You know, this is the fruits of a, of a long battle, um, a long game played by our church and, and Catholic forces. So um, I think that's really important. So we're so we're uh, um, next month going to start releasing materials to help Catholics and other people of faith have deeper conversations about this, give them the information they need to do their own moral discernment and come to their own convictions. Jamie Manson is executive director of Catholics for Choice, which has been promoting access to abortion in a Catholic context since uh, 1973. Jamie, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today on State of Belief Radio. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you for inviting me. And um, we really are in this together, preserving this narrative of, of, of people of faith in this country. Public opinion means little when agendas are defined and driven by ideologues. But it does matter when those same ideologues are amplified by media uh, to convey a grossly inaccurate picture of uh, American values, particularly on uh, an issue as loaded as reproductive rights. Pew Research recently released a compelling look at this issue headlined America's Abortion Quandary. And I'm very pleased to welcome senior researcher Bashir Mohammed to State of Belief Radio again. Bashir, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Good. While the uh, public rhetoric usually paints the issue in black and white, Pew found that most Americans recognized a need for access to abortion under some circumstances. Now, is is that right? Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that, that this uh, analysis showed us is that most Americans don't have uh, a sort of absolutist position uh, with regard to abortion. They think there are situations in which abortion should be legal, um, but they're also open to a variety of restrictions. And, you know, they think that things like how long someone's been pregnant um, should be considered. They think um, uh, that parental notifications are appropriate, but if a woman's health is in danger, the overwhelming majority of Americans think abortion should be legal. Uh, if the pregnancy is the result of rape, the overwhelming majority of Americans think it should, the abortion should, abortion should be legal. Um, early in a pregnancy, uh, the balance of opinion is there are definitely more Americans by about a two to one margin that say abortion should be legal than to say that it should be illegal. So uh, we see some real richness in this um, in, in public opinion on this mm-hmm. that's often lost in a lot of the discussion. Well, what are the numbers on legal in all cases versus illegal in all cases? Well, the legal and illegal in all cases numbers are actually quite low. Um, only about 
8% of the public um, says abortions should be illegal in all cases. There are no exceptions. Um, and only about 19% of the public says abortion should be legal in all cases with no exceptions, uh, which means that uh, about 7 in 10 Americans, maybe a little more, uh, believe that there are situations in which abortion should be legal and the situations in which it should not be. Hmm. You found uh, predictable religious patterns in how many uh, exceptions uh, respondents were likely to allow. Uh, talk about those patterns, if you would. Sure. Um, so I think one one of the, the sort of predictable patterns we saw uh, is among white evangelicals. Um, mm-hmm. They were a group that uh, was highly like of, of all the groups, they were the, the group that was most likely um, to say that they think abortion should be illegal um, in, in most cases or in all cases. Um, they're also the group most likely to say that um, religion is a very important factor in their views on abortion. Um, and most likely to say that they believe that human life begins at conception. Mm-hmm. Um, another pattern that I think is interesting with regard to religion uh, is black Protestants. Now, on a variety of, of measures of religious uh, engagement practice, black Protestants are, are highly religious or, or as religious as white evangelicals. If you're looking at attendance of religious services, frequency of prayer, Bible reading, any of these things. Um, but then when we ask these questions about uh the legality of abortion, uh, we, we see that uh, black Protestants are much more open to, um, to abortion being legal um, hmm. than white evangelicals. Hmm. That is interesting. Uh, I, I thought the um, uh, Democrat-Republican numbers were very intriguing as well. Uh, what's, what's important to know about that? Well, I guess— um, you know, the, the, the sort of top line pattern we see is, is more or less what you'd expect uh, if, if you've been following this for a little while, um, which is to say that Democrat, Democrats tend to be uh, more uh, supportive of abortion rights, uh, while Republicans tend to be um, uh, more in favor of uh, restricting abortion access. Um, however, in, for, among both Democrats and Republicans, we do see the pattern that I mentioned overall, that most folks are still in that middle category. Mm-hmm. Um, most folks do um, see that there are situations where abortion should be legal and situations in which there should be uh, restrictions. Um, you know, you can even look at people who say, for example, in general, abortion should be um, legal in all cases or legal in most cases. Most of those people say how far along a pregnancy is should be considered as a factor. Uh, Most of those people say that parental notifications would be appropriate if a minor is seeking an abortion, Mm -hmm. that the provider should notify the parent before um, conducting it. On the other hand, uh, you look at people um, who say abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. The plurality of of those folks say that, well, if the woman's uh, health is in danger, then it should be legal. And those folks are pretty evenly divided on whether uh, if the pregnancy is the result of rape, uh, the abortion should be legal. So even though they say in general, 
we think it should be illegal. They say, well, but you know, we need to, some of these situations are, are, are more complex. Yeah. Huh. For those strictly opposed uh, in most cases, uh, what were the valid grounds for abortion? The most common ones were if the life or health of the woman uh, is in danger. About 46% of those people said that it should definitely be legal. Another 27% said it depended in that situation, which is an interesting pattern we saw throughout that on a variety of these questions, we allowed people to say that it depends. So we'd ask, you know, should it be legal? Should it be illegal? Or does it depend on you know, other factors beyond what we've put into the question? And what we found is that on a lot of these questions, people really wanted that option, uh, wanted to be able to say, OK, well, you've laid out this scenario in your question, but you didn't give me all the facts that I need to know to decide. Okay, you've told me that the woman's health is in danger. Well, what do you mean by that? Like, how, how, how dangerous a threat is it? You know, you've told me that it's six weeks into the pregnancy or 14 weeks into the pregnancy, 24 weeks into the pregnancy, but you haven't told me whether we know if the child would be born healthy, which is another factor that, that many people say are, is important to consider. If they're seeing fetal abnormalities mm-hmm. and there's a, a concern that the, the, the child may be born with... Um, uh, disabilities, many Americans at that point are, are open to, um, mm-hmm. to abortion in that yeah. situation. Hmm. I was fascinated by uh, the, the trend lines included in, in this report showing uh, support and opposition levels since uh, 1995 to the present. As a nation, we're almost exactly where we started, aren't we? Yes. The overall pattern we've seen in public views on abortion is stability. We've seen um, the share of Americans who think abortion should be legal in all or most cases and who say it should be illegal in all or most cases is almost identical now as it was in 1995 when this question was first asked, Hmm. Um, which isn't to say that there hasn't been some change. Uh, For example, we see there's a much clearer partisan alignment on these views than there was. So in 1995, there were significant shares of Democrats who would say that they think abortion um, should be uh, illegal. Uh, And there were a significant share of Republicans that said abortion should be legal. And that's much less the case now. Um, And so there's been a lot of sort of partisan sorting, but public opinion overall is actually pretty similar. We got about six in 10 Americans saying abortion should be legal in all or most cases, about four in 10 saying it should be illegal in all or most cases. And again, when we say all or most, the majority of those folks are in that most category, uh, which is to say that they think that there's room for some, some variation there. Hmm. Bashir, it's, it's popular to uh, point out that restrictions on uh, reproductive rights tend to come from male lawmakers and judges. But your findings on the difference between men and women on abortion rights suggest that gender doesn't really matter. I'm surprised at that. Expand on that if you can. We found, and actually other polls have have shown similar similar patterns, that views on whether abortion should be legal or not, and and even views on the morality of abortion, which we asked separately, there aren't major differences by gender mm-hmm. on this question. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't an issue of, well, men think that this is what should happen for, for abortion and women think this other thing. 
you know, some of this has to do with, uh, especially say among, among white evangelicals, um, and, and other sort of religious groups, the extent to which views on abortion are linked to views on, on human life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if you say that you believe that human life begins at conception and abortion is murder, and that's what you believe, why would that vary by gender? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like, if, if I take that position, which many do, that like, no, this is a human being, and we're talking about murdering a human being, yeah. nobody's going to say, well, okay, well, that's okay, yeah. right? The, the difference is going to be on, you know, the extent to which people buy into that theology. Yeah. Um, and so we don't see major gender differences in this, in this poll on whether uh, abortion should be legal, whether it should be moral, on whether human life begins at conception. Mm-hmm. There are big differences by, re- by religion and by other patterns. Um, but that isn't to say that there isn't a gender story here. Mm-hmm. Um, women do report what you might say as being closer to the issue, which again mm-hmm. isn't very surprising. They're more likely to say they've thought a lot about the issue. They're more likely to say that they personally know someone who has had an abortion. So while on the one hand, their views on the norms, on legality, on morality, um, are fairly similar, there's a different experience, and that definitely also comes through in the data. What else is important to, to note about this survey at this time in American history? I mean, I, I, th- I think you, you've, you've covered a pretty pretty good range of you know, what is nearly a hundred page report. There's a, there's a lot, right? Um, I think if there were one point that's worth highlighting, and I think it, I think it ties into uh, a topic that, that you explored uh, recently in a, in a previous um, conversation, mm-hmm. is the distinction that many Americans are, are very comfortable making between their moral views and their legal views. Yeah. About half of the public says that they think there are situations in which abortion's morally wrong but nevertheless should be legal. That pattern of saying, well, you know, this is my personal moral view, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the law needs to say. We see it in in that pattern of responses. We gave people an opportunity to give sort of open-ended responses to what they think about abortion. Mm -hmm. And many people on that also voice this sort of on the one hand, on the other hand perspective where they'd say, well, I would never personally do it. However, I think that Legally, uh, it shouldn't be restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of sort of a broader distinction that we've seen and that we've explored at the Pew Research Center to some extent about the relationship between religion and, and state power, mm-hmm. uh, in sort of the church and state question, where we have seen that most Americans believe that there should be a distinction there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and this this is true. You know, including uh, most Christians yeah. uh, believe yeah. that there should be a distinction there. That that there's room in this country to say, I personally hold this view, and I hold it very strongly, mm-hmm. but I don't want to see it codified into law. Yeah, Bashir Muhammad is senior researcher at Pew Research. We'll link to the report, uh, America's Abortion Quandary, from. Uh, stateofbelief.com. Bashir, thank you for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available for stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. 
Belief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy. That state of belief. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. See what he was.